So as I mentioned, uh, last week we started this new series, Discipleship 101, and uh, basically what it is, is what are the basics, what are the essentials of following Jesus? Um, and it's not just about behavior, right? It's not about just changing what I do. It's about, it's about being something different. So I mentioned last week that uh, the call to follow Jesus is not the call to be nice. It's the call to let him make you new. But so many of us aren't free to be new because we're holding on to stuff. So today, taking the next step, you know, um, I want to be free to be made new, but I need to be free to be something else as well. And it's not I need to be free to be good. And it's not I need to be free to behave. It's something else. Something more core to, I think, every one of our hearts. Before I get to that, though, I don't know if you've heard, ever heard the story of a father-son duo. They're called Team Hoyt, uh, Dick and Ricky Hoyt. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Dick and Ricky Hoyt. Years ago, when, when Dick, the dad, and his wife, Judy, were just 22 years old, uh, Judy gave birth to, to Ricky. And Ricky was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck, and so he ended up having cerebral palsy. Imagine 22 years old, maybe some of your age, maybe a little last year, maybe next year, 22 years old, and here's your baby with CP. The doctors, they all said, actually, you know what you can do, Dick and Judy? You can just, you can send Rick away. You don't have to take care of him. You can send him to an institution, and you guys would get on with your life. You can have more kids and just, but leave Rick to someone else to take care of. And they were like, absolutely not. They said, that's our son. And they said, we're going to raise our son like like any other child of ours, treat him like anyone else. And so they did. I mean, they, they had a wheelchair. He had kids on the block who would, like, push him around playing hockey. Rick would, like, prop the stick in his arms, and they'd kind of swivel him around. And, and his mom, Judy, would, would teach him the alphabet. So, you know, people thought, no, he's stupid. He can't think for himself. And so why teach him this thing? But she kept pointing around the house, like, this is A, this is B, this is C. Started teaching him words. When he was 11 years old, when Ricky was 11 years old, they found this contraption that by blinking, by looking at words on a screen and blinking, he could spell out words. And they found that he was thinking this whole time. And he could finally communicate at 11 years old. They actually sent him to school then. He could read, he could write, he could communicate. Um, when, but when he was 13, two years after he got to school, something happened in their, in their hometown. There was a kid who was a lacrosse player at his high school who was in an accident and he was paralyzed. So they were doing a five-mile charity run for, for this young man. And Ricky said to his dad through the interpreter, he said, um, Dad, we need to do this race. Like, I want to run this race. Ricky's paralyzed, right? He I mean, literally can't move. I want to run this race, Dad. Because I want him, this kid in my high school, I want him to know that life doesn't end just because you're paralyzed. So his dad wasn't a runner. He was 32 at the time. His dad says, okay, we set up this contraption, this kind of like running wheelchair. And while Ricky was at school, he loaded like, you know, pounds of like rocks and stuff into the, into the wheelchair and trained when Ricky was at school. But when Ricky was there, he pushed Ricky in the chair. And that started this whole thing, Team Hoyt. Their last race was in 2014. Because um, they're getting old now. Uh, but at the end of the, at all those years, they ultimately ended up running 72 marathons, 97 half marathons. They did 257 triathlons. Six of those were Ironman distance triathlons, and seven of those were half Ironman. So an Ironman distance triathlon is a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, and a 26.2-mile run. And Dick would do this whole thing carrying Ricky. You know, he, he'd, swim, he'd swim the two and a half miles uh, with towing a little rubber raft. Ricky would be in the back. And then when he got to land, he would pick up his son, and he'd carry him through the sand past the beach, past the tra- transition into the parking lot, and he'd load his son into the bike, and he'd pedal him, and then he'd load his son into the carrier where he'd run, and he just got, he carried his son through all these races. And Team Hoyt, father and son duo. 
In order for Ricky, the son, to be able to do these incredible things, he had to do one thing. He had to let his father get close enough to carry him. See, to be a Christian, to be a disciple, is not, it's not about trying harder. It's not about doing more. It's not about being better. It's about being held. Being a Christian, being discipleship 101, it's so much, so much more than being good. It's about being held. But I wonder if, I wonder how much there is in me that doesn't want to be held. I mean, I realize there's some things in my life that I'm just like, uh, there's something in me that's not free. I'm not free to be held. I, I, I think I'm bound rather than held sometimes. I think about that, especially in the gospel today. In the gospel, you have this scene, right? Jesus, he just called the apostles. We heard about that last week. And he goes into Capernaum and he goes to the synagogue. And it says, immediately when he started preaching, immediately there was a man with a demon. And what did that man with the demon say? He says, first, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, it's really important to understand the plight of this man who's possessed by a demon. And everything he says is going to be really important. Because what he reveals is that this man is three things. He's divided, he's afraid, and he's bound. He's divided, he's afraid, and he's bound. And so many of us, so many of us, that the thing that keeps us from being held is we're divided, and we're afraid, and we're bound. We can often be in the same place as this man in the gospel. He's divided. In fact, pay attention to these words. He says, what have you to do with us? He's speaking in the plural. Now, part of it is because there's a demon there. But we realize that even if I'm not affected by a demon or possessed by a demon, what we recognize is that sin does something to us. Sin divides, always. Sin divides ourselves from others. Sin divides ourselves from God. And sin even divides ourselves in ourselves. And what happens is, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but what happens is it ends up creating a bunch of false selves. Like sin ends up creating a bunch of false selves. In fact, so often, like the reason we choose sin is because... We have this false self. What's a false self? There's a, a guy named his name is Thomas Merton. He was a Cistercian monk back in the last century. And he said this. He said, the false self is who I want to be or even who I imagine myself to be just outside of God's will. My false self is who I imagine myself to be outside of God's heart. My false self is who I imagine myself to be or who I want myself to be just outside of God's grasp. There's a problem with that, and the problem is that version of you, if you ever recognize in yourself that you have a false self, that, the problem is that version of you doesn't exist. Like that version of us outside of God's grasp, it's not real. It's a construct. So I, that version of me can't be held because God can't love a false version of me. God can't love a false version of you. If he could, he would. But he can only love what's real. God can only love what's real. So if I've created all these false selves and I put so much effort into dressing them up, and maybe that's your story. Like the you that you identify with and like you want other people to know, but it's not really who you are. Even it's the you who prays sometimes or tries to pray sometimes. Like, why can't I get close to God? Well, it's because I created this false self and I can't get close to God because that false self doesn't exist. Why doesn't it feel like he loves that self? Because that self can't be loved because it's not real. I have this false self I bring before God and God can't even look at it because he's looking for you. He's looking for me. I find myself divided, but he wants to make us whole. What have you come to do with us? Divided? I've come to make you whole. But we're divided and afraid. 
And I think that oftentimes uh, we're divided and afraid because we say maybe in the heart, uh, the heart, our heart of hearts, what the demon says. Have you come to destroy us? I mean, how many times do, you, do, you see, do we see Christianity as that? That's the whole thing. Christianity is a God who loves you so much, he wants to wreck your life. God who loves you so much, he gave this whole world for you, but he wants you to not enjoy any of it. Like, I think sometimes we have this weird version of Christianity that says that God came to ruin your fun. And so what have you come to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? God came to take away everything that you love, everything that brings you joy. That's a false version of Christianity. But that's, I think, what we're afraid of. This image of Jesus, I can't let him get close because he'll ruin everything. I mean, you don't have to nod your head or anything like this or raise your hand, but like, have you ever, has that ever kept you away from God? I can't let him get close because he will take away everything that I love or everything that I think that I need. So we have this, this thing, it's, it's, the, it's the words of a demon, no offense, but have you come to destroy us? God's answer, of course, is no. I came to fight what's fighting you. I came to battle what's binding you. I came to kill what's killing you. Like, listen, I'm, here's God who comes into this and says, says, actually, no, 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 I have not come to destroy you. I have come to destroy what is holding you back from actually being you. Everything, everything that's causing so much grief in your life and causing so much suffering in your life, I'm here to do battle to that. Why have I come not to destroy you? Set you free. But I'm divided and I'm afraid because I'm bound. Um, and, I, you know, there's a deeper kind of bondage, spiritual bondage of slavery. Um, that's what they talk about in the scriptures today. It's, it's a bondage to Satan. It's a bondage to sin. I'm not going to talk about that today. What I want to talk about is the bondage we have. It means like an affection for the things that cause us to be slaves. Say that again. An affection for the things that cause us to be slaves. Have you guys ever heard of a thing called Stockholm Syndrome? Some of the psychology majors might have heard of this. Stockholm Syndrome comes from this, uh, this event that happened 45 years ago in Stockholm, Sweden. There were uh, two bank robbers. And they went into a bank and they robbed it. <laughs> they were good at their job. Uh, they went into the bank and they, they robbed it, but they took four, uh, four innocent people hostage and they held them captive for six days. At the end of that six-day you know, standoff with the police, the officials discovered something really crazy had happened. The captives, though those who were hostage, had developed an affection for their captors. Those who were hurt and were, were, were kept bound by the captors, ended up being unwilling to prosecute them. In fact, they were asked to, to give testimony against the two men who were bank robbers, and they refused to testify against them because they had so fully identified with the bank robbers that anyone who was going to come and put them in jail, they said, no, you're actually attacking me as well. It's a really unique kind of a situation where it doesn't happen very often um, in this whole, like, all the way to the end of the Stockholm Syndrome but it has a couple different facets to it. One is the person who's in that situation has to think that they're about to die. And initially they have to think that my life is over. It's all about just survival, basic survival. Then those who are holding them hostage, the captors, have to give them just scraps. Just give them pieces of hope. Give them pieces of kindness. They don't have to actually be kind to them. They just have to treat them like, you, know, you thought you were going to die, but I'm not going to make you die. I'm going to give you a little scrap. So then what happens is if you're the hostage, you think... Wait a second, this person's nice to me. Because I thought I was going to die, and they're actually giving me food now. I thought I was going to be dead, and they, they're actually letting me use the bathroom. Like, like, this is basic stuff. But you think, no, I now thought I was going to die. I was given a scrap by this person, a little hint of kindness. And so now I not only have an affection for them, I begin to identify with them. This happened so much so 45 years ago in Stockholm that when the police came in to raid the bank, 
the hostages considered the police to be hostile forces to them as well. Because you're here to take away the person I identify with now. This happens a ton. Maybe it has happened to you in a relationship before, or you were in a clearly in a, in a bad relationship with this person, but they just, they just give you enough scraps to keep you going. They just treated you just nicely enough to kind of keep it rolling down, you know, rolling on. And I, I'll talk to so many people who are like this. They're like, oh, you know, they treat me bad, badly, and they, they are like this and this, and they're super controlling, all these kind of things. But, I mean, they did give me flowers for Valentine's Day, so... No, that's craziness. But it's this idea. What the idea is? Who would I be? What would I be without this relationship? What would I be? Who would I be without this thing? And this happens with our sins too. It becomes this matter of survival, and then our sins sometimes treat us nice. So we think I can't live without it. This is a little question that you don't have to raise your hand again. Um, are there any wounds you have, any sins you have, anything in your life you have that you think, I can't live without this. If Jesus came to take it away, like, I would be destroyed. If there's anything like that, it means I'm divided, I'm afraid, and I'm bound. And yet the crazy thing, the amazing, the beautiful thing is when that man says these things, he's divided, he's afraid, he's bound, Jesus just says, quiet, come out of him. And with a word, he like sets him free. Jesus steps in and says, okay, now I set you free. And this is what happened, this is what happened to you. When you were baptized, that's what Jesus did. He said, you're now free. There's actually this rite, in, the rite of baptism called exorcism. And in that rite of exorcism, you're set free from anything that could bind you, anything that could hold you back. And yet what happens a lot of times is then I fall back into the sin and I find myself bound again. So you know what the next rite of exorcism that the church gives us on a regular basis is called the sacrament of confession. In fact, the most powerful exorcism we know as human beings, is confession. So if I find myself divided and afraid and bound, it's not. It's like, where do I go? What do I do? How do I hear that voice of God saying, be free? I just have to say, okay, Lord, speak that word over me in confession. I, I love that. I, one of my favorite words to hear, some of my favorite words to say in the entire world. Absolve you of all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I didn't just give you absolution. I was just saying the words. Um, but some of my favorite words to hear over myself, some of my favorite words to say over others, God has done this to you, and now you're free. Free for what? Free to be held. If you find yourself divided and afraid and bound, you guys, please, 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 just go to confession. Why? So that you can be free to be held. You know, there's a definition of faith in the catechism. It says this, faith is a personal adherence of the whole person to the God who reveals himself. What I mean by that, what it says, personal adherence of the whole person, not divided, the whole self, adhering to God, meaning I'm holding him as he holds me. I'm holding him as he holds me. He's holding you as you're holding on to him and realizing you can do anything in that moment. When you're free to be held, there is nothing you can't do. That's why Christianity is not about being good. It's about being held. This is the last thing. Um, all, these, all these wounds, all these weaknesses, all this stuff that, like I say the word weakness or, or wound or whatever you might think, just the word, maybe you think of what it is for you. Hopefully you think of what it is for you. Because I think of what it is for me, and I'm just going to say the words like weakness and struggles. Don't try to figure out what mine are. Maybe you could tell. 
I hate them so much. Like, I, I can't tell you how many times I have begged God to make me less weak. I can't tell you how many times I just said, God, just please just make me a better man. Like, make me better. Make me a better son. Make me a better priest. Make me a better disciple. I say, I was, God, if you, if you just took away all these broken parts, I'll just take away all these broken parts of me that I just, I honestly just hate so much. Then I could be. Like, then I could be great. Then I could be yours. Then I could be all these things. If you just take those away. That's not true. Think of Dick and Ricky Hoyt. This father and son. I sometimes wonder if God resents that I'm still a mess. I sometimes wonder if God looks at me and is like, what the flip? Are you kidding me? Like, get over it, dude. Like, why do I have to keep carrying you? Here's the truth of the matter is, though, when you look at Dick and Ricky Hoyt, you never get the impression that the father resents having to carry his son. When you look at Dick and Ricky Hoyt, you never get the sense that the father's like, man, I wish you weren't so weak so I wouldn't have to carry you. You just see a father who's like, I cannot wait to carry my son as long as I can and for as far as I can. You know, Ricky had said about these races, he said, Dad, when I'm racing, I don't even feel handicapped. Dad, when I'm racing, I don't even feel handicapped. And when you're free to be held, you can say, Dad, when you carry me, my weaknesses don't matter anymore. Dad, when you carry me, I can go places that I can never go on my own. Dad, when you hold me, I don't even feel like I'm broken anymore. In order to get to this place, I don't have to do more. I just have to ask the Father. Father, just help me and make me free to be held. 